If you have your Bibles, why don't you meet me in Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep your hand raised high, um, and one of the guys will be able to get you a Bible. If you don't own one, please keep this. This is our gift to you. We, we say that every week, but we mean it. Keep it. And if you don't have one, but you, you own one, but you don't have one, raise your hand as well so you can have a Bible to walk along with us, because we're going to walk through all 10 verses today um, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. As I said before, this is our second to last week. If you've been tracking with us, Galatians has been a series ultimately in connecting us to Jesus. It's been a series that, that has, has taught us that morality is not what matters, when, what it means to become a Christian, um, that the way that we're raised is not what matters, how we function, how we act. What matters ultimately is Jesus, us by faith responding to Jesus and living in light of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, wrote this letter for one purpose, and that was to correct the false teaching of a group of people called Judaizers that were teaching that in order to become a Christian, you needed to believe in Jesus plus add works. And Paul comes and says, no, in order to become a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. And so the last couple weeks, we've been looking at Christian ethics. In essence, how a person, a believer in Jesus Christ, man or female, uh, follows Christ and how he or she lives their life in response to the gospel. And then we get to chapter 6, and I'm just going to tell you up front, this is the hardest passage to teach in this whole, this whole book. One, because it seems like Paul has random thoughts. As, as Heather was reading, you could hear this is just random thoughts. It seems like he takes tangents, which is normally what I do anyway, but this time you can't blame me, so just blame Paul, right? And so confusing but the more, at first glance, it seems random, but the more um, I studied and studied with the guys who we, we studied with in the preaching collectives, we, we understand what Paul is saying. In essence, last week, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, and he gave us the metaphor of a war, where there's a war between your flesh and your spirit. And now, he sp- last week, he spoke in very abstract ways, walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. And then this week, he shows exactly what gospel spirituality looks like. So, so not just walk by the Spirit in a very ambiguous way, but here's exactly what it should look like. And so the way that you read this is to look at a mirror to say, this is, if you're going to be a spiritual person, and when I say spiritual, I mean someone who loves Jesus and wants to follow Jesus, this is what it should look like. And so um, three big categories. The first one is bearing, verses 1 through 6, uh, 1 through 5. And the second one is sharing, which is this verse 6. And the last section is sowing. So bearing, sharing, and sowing. So before we jump into this, would you guys, as always, bow your heads with me and let's ask God by his Holy Spirit to bless us, give us illumination. Father, we thank you so much um, that we can gather. I thank you for Caitlin and her team that leads our children well as they are going through the same thing we're going through this morning in the classrooms. God, I pray that your gospel would come to bear in our children and that you would raise them in Jesus and that you would give us as parents um, the opportunity and responsibility, Lord, to love them well. And as we are in here, Lord, in this room, God, I pray that your spirit would be upon us, that your spirit would move. And as we look at what seems to be confusing text, that you would make it clear to us. That as we walk away, Lord, that the word of God um, would not return void, but it would water our souls. Father, I pray for those who are here um, who question the word, who question God, that you would make yourself clear. That you'd remove me and anybody else in this room, that we may see Jesus and Jesus only. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul starts off first in verse 6 by saying brothers, meaning he's talking to a church. And so the first thing you want to know is if you are going to be someone who's a spiritual person, gospel spirituality, the first thing you need is a church. 
is before we get in the text that you need a church, you need to be a part of a church, you need to be faithful to a church, meaning you need a community in the most broadest sense, a community of people who love Jesus and who will come alongside you, who will pray with you. And so a church that preaches the gospel, a church that, that cares for God's word, whether that's Redemption Tempe or another church, um, be a part of a church. If you're going to grow as a believer in Jesus, if you want to be introduced to Jesus for the first time, be a part of a church. When Paul says brothers, he means brothers and sisters. So again, he's talking to Christians. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so the point here is not even the person who's caught in sin. We'll we'll deal with that in a second. But the person who he's talking to is you who are spiritual. So let's unpack that first. Spiritual. Sometimes we think spiritual people are people who pray a lot. A person who's spiritual does pray. Sometimes we think spiritual people are people who, um, who feel like they're more connected to God than you are. At its essence, when Paul says spiritual, those who are spiritual, he's not talking about maturity. There, there, there are people in this room who have been Christian for years and are very mature believers. And then there's some of you guys who are in this room, and some of us in the room have been Christians for a couple years or for a couple months. What's been really unique and awesome during this series of Galatians, as Vince said earlier, we've seen people who were not Christians six weeks ago who are Christians now. And so they're young believers. However, though young believer or mature believer, believer is what makes you spiritual. But Paul is saying this is a call to every single person who professes faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I'm talking to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian and someone drug you as a Christian, nudge them and say, hey, I don't have to listen, but you have to listen because he's talking to you, all right? You, Christian, he says, if anyone is caught in transgressions, you who are spiritual, you got to restore them with gentleness. And when Paul says caught in transgressions here, he's saying someone who's caught in a sin. Not someone who had premeditated a sin, but someone who was probably not on their guard, someone who had a weak moment, and then they fell in sin. And it says it is our role as believers, as gospel people who are mature, it is our role to come alongside them. It is our role to restore them gently. He does not say, yell at them. He does not say, look at them and say, how dare you do this again? Not at all. But he does say to us who are spiritual to watch ourselves that we, may not, stum- we not, may not stumble as well, that we may not be tempted. The, the best picture of how to restore someone in sin is looking at Jesus. Um, in John chapter 8, there's a famous, famous, famous uh, passage there, and I'll paraphrase it here, 8 verses 3 through 11, of Jesus with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And so this woman's caught in the act of adultery. In the law, in the Old Testament, it was written that anyone who was caught in the very act of adultery should be stoned. And so the Pharisees, which were the religious people at that time, at Jesus' time, came to Jesus only to tempt Jesus and to test Jesus, said, what are we to do with this woman? She's been caught in the act of adultery. And then Jesus proceeds exactly the way we should in a balance of truth and of grace. Is that the woman's next to Jesus and, and the men are around and they have their stones and Jesus kneels down next to this woman and then he writes into the sand. Plenty of authors and theologians have tried to guess at what he was writing in the sand. I don't think that matters, because if it mattered, John would have told us he didn't. But what does matter is that Jesus kneels down next to this woman. And in that culture, was not right, but in that culture, women were not respected and treated well. And so here's God himself, Jesus, kneeling down next to this sinner, a woman caught in the act of adultery. She was guilty, not innocent. 
And the, the picture that we have is Jesus drawing near and being close to her, meaning he can hear her weeping and she can hear him breathing. And Jesus writes in the sand and he gets up and he looks at the men around and he says, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. Meaning those of you who are here who've never sinned, cast the first stone. And, and they begin to drop their stones, it says, from the oldest to the youngest. And then Jesus looks at that woman and says, is there anyone here left to condemn you? There was only one person there who was without sin, who was impeccable and sinless, who could have cast a stone. It was Jesus. And he's the one who says, is anyone here left to continue? She goes, no, neither do I. Go and sin no more. That's the picture of what Paul is explaining here in verse one. The picture is that, that we're not tolerant of sin. Like we're not tolerating sin. Sin is not something that we're like, oh yeah, we're okay with it. We want to be a church where people can come in here who have issues. That, that people who don't even know Jesus can come in here and figure it out. People who know Jesus who are still struggling their sin can be here. However, we don't want to be a place where we're, we're comfortable with us not growing. We don't want to be a place where we're comfortable with, 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 with not preaching the truth. Jesus brings truth because he says go and sin no more, meaning you do need to repent, but he brings grace. He forgives her. And so when we come alongside people, we have to have that same balance. A balance to be able to point them to Jesus, a point to say there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Repent and believe. And the reason why Paul says, be careful that you may not be tempted, the temptation here on one side is that when you come alongside people, there, there's, a, there's a sense where you could begin to struggle with the same sin that you're helping them with. But I think the bigger issue is a sense of self-righteousness and pride, just like these Pharisees. The Pharisees caught this woman in the act of adultery, which was a sin, and yet they didn't realize that they were equally as sinful. There's no particular sin that's worse than the other. Now, there are some sins that bring worse consequences, but sin in itself before God is we're all in that boat. That's Christian, non-Christian alike. And so when he says, be careful that you're not tempted, is don't, don't be self-righteous. Don't think just because you don't struggle with a particular sin that somehow you're above it. Jesus says, no, no, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so we come alongside and we, we love the people we're with. Now, as a side note of that, the only way that we can come alongside you um, is if you're in proximity with people. This text does imply community. It does imply that you're next to one another. I think the problem that we have is not so much of being gentle, not so much of being graceful, but being truthful. Because when, we talk about, when I talk to people and I say, yeah, this guy's my friend, this guy's my friend, this girl's my friend, I ask the question, when's the last time you ever pointed them to Jesus because of a particular sin in their life? when's the last time you ever prayed with them and for them other than maybe eating a meal? I think our tendency, if we're not careful, is to be good friends around the campfire, to be good, good friends around a drink, to be good friends and hanging out, but not to be there uh, and to be honest with them. If, you, if someone really loves you, they'll point you to Jesus. And pointing people to Jesus is pointing out areas in their life that are not in step with the truth of the gospel. That, that's why you need a church, and not just a church, but a church that loves people, and not just by waving, but people who are honest, gentle, which is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about last week. Paul continues here in talking about what gospel spirituality looks like when it comes to bearing. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That, that, that idea of bearing means you carry something that's too heavy for the person to do, that that person cannot carry that. A perfect example of this was when I was in college trying to pick a um, university to go to, I wanted to come to ASU, and I wanted to take my recruiting trip in September. And my coach was like, no, 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 you don't want to come in September. Now I know why. Because I'm from Southern California. Summer ends in August. Arizona? November, right? And so we just, so he says, come in December. I came in December. It was freezing cold. And I thought, oh, the desert's not that hot. I moved out here in August. And 
The first day of practice, it was 117 degrees. It was the hottest day, in my opinion, ever in Arizona. We're out there practicing. I'm thought, okay, they have to call practice, right? Like, it's too hot. Satan and his demons are in the stands. Like, oh, it's good to be home, right? It's so, it was so hot, so hot. Well, after practice, um, my body, my entire body cramped up. I got muscle cramp, but every muscle in my body. You have no idea how many muscles you have until you have a body cramp. My throat cramped up. My toes, my heart cramped. Every single thing about me cramped up. And the do- team doctor had already gone home, so they couldn't put an IV in me. For five hours, I was cramping up. I thought I was going to die. No, I died. And then God brought me back. Um, I, I was... I was, my, my quad would cramp up, and they'd cr- stretch my quad, and then my hamstring. It was all bad, and after five hours, um, they put me on a stretcher and put me in the back of a Jeep and drove me to my dorms, uh, dorm room, and I'm sitting there because they didn't want me to move on the stretcher, and my roommates had to carry me in Sonora Dormitory, room 303, to my room and just plop me on my bed, all right? Which is funny because one of my roommates is here right now laughing at that. Um, true story. That's the picture. I couldn't do anything except for cramp up. And my roommates had to carry me. There, 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 um, there are certain situations, there are certain temptations, uh, there are certain circumstances that we have that we need people. Ultimately, God does carry your ultimate, your ultimate burden, but that is the penalty of sin on the cross. We see how hard it is to carry bear, bear, burdens. When Jesus is on the cross, he's literally broken and he dies for the sins of all who would believe. And then there's circumstances where he calls upon God's people to help people to carry their burdens. Um, in the context of talking of sin here, meaning there are burdens that people have, that you have and that I have, that if we don't get help, we will be living in sin. Here's why. There are circumstances with family. There are circumstances, circumstances in marriage. There are circumstances at work that are so heavy on us that the pressure breaks us and we, lead to, we go to sin. Some of the sins that we mentioned last week, the sins of the flesh. And so two things. You need to be transparent to let people know when you need help. I think that's one of the biggest problems with us as Christians is that, no, we got this. No, we, I'm cool. I'm good. You sure? No, I'm good. No, you're not. Be honest. No, I need help. I, I need, sometimes it could just be prayer. Sometimes it could be financial help. Um, sometimes it could be intervention. I need help. That's on your side. And on the side of us who are helping people, we have to be ready. We have to make time in our lives. We're just busy people. We are busy, busy people. We need to make time for the people who are in our lives to be able to help them. Paul says, if we do this, this is an act of love and thus fulfilling the law, that we carry each other's burdens. And then he shifts gears here and says, for if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Here's what Paul is saying. It's pretty clear. If you think you're something and you're nothing, stop it, right? I think that's what he's saying right there. If you've ever been in a position where you think um, that you think something good of yourself, have you ever been in a situation where you thought something good of yourself and someone told you and other people told you, and you're like, oh, man, th- this whole day I thought my shirt looked good and everyone said it was bad, right? Um, again, Another embarrassing story of myself. Uh, my senior year in high school, we had an awards banquet, whatever, and my coach was getting up there and he was giving the, 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 the MVP the most valuable defensive back. Well, that's the position I played. And as he's talking, he goes, oh, the last four years it was good getting ready to know this guy. And, and he goes on and he's, he's totally talking about me and my thought. Uh, and, and, uh, and he goes, all right, without further ado, why don't you guys welcome, I stood up 
and he goes, Devin Robinson. I was like, everybody stand up for Devin. Let's, let's uh, get this. I was standing up, walking down. It was like, oh. And I thought, okay, and my standards, I thought I was better than him. And coach's standards, that wasn't it. That, that's what, what Paul was communicating. When we have our own standards, most of the time, it's comparing with other people. Um, you could do okay. Because honestly, you're better than somebody at something. It's just the truth. I know we don't want to say that now, but it's true. Let's just be honest, right? Some kids are prettier than other kids. Some people are faster. I know we don't like, but it's true. Everyone doesn't get the same award in real life, right? And what Paul is saying here is, if you just grade on the horizontal, you can look around and go, there's at least somebody that I'm better in. And he goes, and that's not how God looks at us. The standard that God has ultimately is a vertical standard of his holiness and of his word. And in that, none of us match up. That's why he says, you're nothing. And that's not to put you down. That's not to say you don't have value. That's not to say you don't have worth. I have to say that. It's saying when it comes to what you can offer to God apart from what Christ has worked in you, you don't have anything. Therefore, we can't grade each other by looking horizontal. That's the natural thing. As long as I'm doing better than her, then I'm okay. And Paul goes, no. In fact, don't look at your neighbor to see how good you're doing. He says this, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Meaning, if you look in what you're doing, and it's not boasting in yourself that Paul's really talking about, if you are able to produce fruit, if you are able to do good, you should trust and know that it's God who has worked in you. And so not in your neighbor, but in yourself. The boasting in itself is not boasting in what you've done, but boasting in what God by his spirit has done in you and then through you. And Paul wraps up this first section in saying this, for each will have to bear his own load. And this is why I said this gets confusing, because it just said, bear each other's burdens. And now it says, oh yeah, bear your own load. Two different words here. The other one has the idea of, um, if you've ever been to the gym and you've seen like, you know, meatheads lifting weights and stuff, they have their friends spotting them. And so if a guy's bench pressing or a girl's bench pressing, all right, and um, they, have, they have someone spotting them, and you can tell that they're really not that strong because the person spotting them is essentially doing curls, right? And so that, that's, that would be a burden, like you need help. And then you go to the gym, and, and there's always the fitness people in there that are just doing reps, push-ups, knocking it out. That would be a load. And so burden, I need help. Load, these are my responsibilities. So responsibilities that God has given you to obey, that's something you need to do. Um, responsibilities to love your wives, to love your husband, to care for your kids, uh, to be faithful. Those are responsibilities. The word for burdens is a word of like a forklifting that's heavy. And then the word that's used for load in verse 5, has the, it carries the ideal of not difficult. So that's just obedience by faith. And what Paul is saying, even though you're restoring your brothers, even though you're carrying burdens, watch out that you may not be prideful because one day you will stand before God and you will have to give an account for all the gifts, the resources, and talents that God has given you. What did you do with your part? So in essence, to, to, to bear your own load is to play your part well. You can't play my part well. I can't play your part well. Whatever gifts, desires, passions, resources that God has given you for the church and for this world, you have to play that part well. That's what Paul's saying. So the first section, bear, bear with one another. It's a context of community. And then Paul shifts to the verse that I wish was not here. Verse six, sharing. It says, let the one who was taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay. This is normally taught as pay your pastors. I'm sweating now. Um, this, this, this text is usually saying what this means is you need to pay your pastors. 
There are texts in Scripture that talk about financially taking care of those who shepherd you and lead you. In the context of this, I do not believe that is Paul's primary teaching here. When Paul says, what, share, the, share good with those who are teaching, here's the context. There were elders, there were pastors in Galatia. Paul wasn't the only apostle, excuse me, the only pastor who was there. In fact, Paul was gone at this time. And because these elders are getting beat up by the Judaizers, and because his, his sheep, his flock, are, are following different ways, Paul is saying, be faithful to the ones who are laboring and teaching. Be faithful to the ones who are, who are uh, training you. And he says, share with them good things. Good things could be a variety. Now, the word share in some parts of Scripture does mean finances, but it means more than that. And so the way that you can encourage your pastors or your redemption community leaders, leaders, your teachers, is you can pray for us. You can encourage us. You could hang out with us. You could be friends with us. There, there is some teaching that a pastor should not be really close to the people in his congregation, and I just completely disagree with that because if I weren't close to you guys, I wouldn't know how to teach. I wouldn't know that I need to watch Hunger Games to be relevant right? If, 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 I, if I weren't with people, I, I wouldn't really know these things. I think there's a point where you should not have um, special friends and you should not show favor to anybody, but, but this is a part of saying we should be friends. We should be in community. Um, the biggest thing you can do, and I think I can speak for every single elder here, pray for us. Pray for us. Always pray for us. When you pray for your kids, just throw our names in there too. When you pray for somebody else, just, oh yeah, yeah, Ricardo, just throw our names in there too. Just that, that would be the biggest thing. So this part of share, the way that you, can, you could uh, share with us and is good things is talk about the things that are good in your life. Tell us how God is moving in your redemption community. Tell us when God saved someone around you. Tell us what's happening at work. Tell us those things and pray for us. Amen? All right, moving on. Sharing. <laughs> Last section here is sowing. Verse seven, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For, whoever, for whatever one sows, he will also reap. The, the point here is do not be deceived. He's talking to spiritual people. He's talking to Christians. The easiest person to be deceived in your life is you because we all have blind spots. We all have things, we all have things in, in our lives that we can't see, and that's why we need others around us. And Paul says do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. That literally means you cannot turn your nose up on God. Um, you can't, you can't, turn your nose up or thumb your nose towards God. And it says, for the one who sows from his own flesh, excuse me, verse seven here still, is that for whatever one sows, he will reap. The picture here is living in your own way. Living in a way that shows that you trust in anything but God. It mocks him. That means Christian and non-Christian, every single time we find our value in anything else. Anytime we used anything else for self-glorification, Anytime we sin against God, it's a mock against God. It literally means turn your nose up. Um, there's, a, there's a different illustration that I'll use at the 7 o'clock service, but has I do with using your fingers and only having one of them up. It, it, literally, it literally means that no thank you to the cross, no thank you to the gospel. And, and so Paul speaks in serious language here as he transitions to this part. And he says, and if you sow this way, you will reap this way. I know most of us are not farmers, but we understand if you sow an apple seed, you will not get an orange tree. And, and if you sow an orange tree, you will not get an apple orchard, right? That's, that's what he's saying. And then now Paul, last week's used war metaphor, metaphor, now uses farming. Last week it was flesh and spirit, but going against each other. Now it's farming and being able to plant seeds. And so in verse 8, he says, For the one who sows to his own flesh 
or from his flesh reap corruption. The picture here is having seeds. So if you had seeds in your pocket and you can sow into the flesh, and, and just for recap, when it talked about the flesh uh, last week, in verse, beginning in verse 19, it says that the works of the flesh are sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So if, when you begin to sow, in essence, any way you live apart from God, not just those actions, but when you begin to sow in that, Paul says it's gradual that you will reap corruption. Now, he's talking, again, to Christians, meaning spiritual people not only sin, but make a habit out of sinning. If you were a Christian, you can still make a habit out of sinning. Paul's saying, it's not wise. You shouldn't do it. And if you do do it, the more and more you become numb to it. Um, I, I, I had, I, when I was 18, I really wanted to get a tattoo, right? Mainly because everyone told me not to get one, and so I wanted to get one. The problem was, and still to this day, I am deathly afraid of needles and dogs and all types of animals, right? So, <laughs> however, I wanted to get it. Here's the thing. Even though I was afraid of it, it at first it hurt a little bit. When the guy went back again, it hurt a little bit, hurt a little bit. After a period of time, it was over. I, didn't, I, didn't, it, I became numb to it. And you know what? I wanted to get another one like the next day. That's why when you see people with tattoos, they have 20. It's addicting, right? It's the same way with sin. We can hate it. We can know we should engage it. And all of a sudden, we try a little bit of it. Oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, I won't do it again. But then we try it again. Oh, it wasn't that bad. Or do we try it again? And we continue to sow the seeds in the flesh. And begin, it begin, we become numb to it. That things before that we used to say, oh, I will never watch this. I will never engage in this. I will never do that. I will never think this way. All of a sudden, those are the very things that you find yourself doing. Now, as we've said every single week, um, sinning does not make you lose your salvation. However, your experience of that salvation diminishes. That you will not have a sense of assurance that you are God's child that you will not have a sense of warmth trusting that the Spirit is, is, is speaking on your behalf and crying out, Abba, Father, that you were a child of the Most High. That the more that you keep on sinning and the more that you keep on sowing seeds in the flesh, where, where, even, again, sowing seeds in the flesh is not only doing bad things, but it's doing good things and making those good things the main things. And the more you do that, the less you can have a sense of reality or understanding of who you are in Christ. And so that's when Paul says that you will reap destruction here. Um, it, it, it's an ongoing process that you have, and it's a dangerous place. Again, you won't lose your salvation if you're a child of God. Ultimately, he will discipline you because he loves you, and he will draw your attention. Some of you guys are miserable. It's amazing to me how many young Christians and even older Christians that I sit with that are miserable because they don't serve. In their marriage, they're sowing seeds in the flesh. At work, seeds in the flesh. In their relationships, seeds in the flesh. And they're, they're constantly trying to do things to get back to the other side, and yet you can't do things to get back to the other side other than repent and believe. I, I'm convinced that a, a Christian who continues to sin and a non-Christian, the non-Christian is happier than the Christian. Because the one thing that the non-Christian has, it does, she or he doesn't have the Holy Spirit reminding them. Whereas the Christian still has the Holy Spirit. And so there's that, there's that miserable life. And some of you just live miserable lives. And Paul says, you don't have to. There's another way. There's a better way. There's a way to respond to Jesus. He does give you, he does give you an outlet. He does give you a way in which you can grow in your understanding. And that's the second part of verse 8. He says, but the one who sows in the Spirit 
will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, instead of sowing in the flesh, it's saying that you take seeds out and it's continuous and it's hard work. Um, if you know a farmer, you know how hardworking a farmer is. In fact, my grandfather, who lives in Mississippi, is a farmer. And I think he's farmed forever and he's, he's old. I think this year he turns 1,000. And he's, he's, been, he's been farming forever. He wears, he wears skinny jeans and a flannel, okay? And he's not a hipster. I, again, he's 1,000. So he's been wearing this for like 600 years. He uh, is an amazing guy, has a, a great hard work ethic. Every morning he wakes up, he goes outside, and he farms, and he works really, really hard. And um, what's interesting about my grandfather, too, is he is, uh, he doesn't speak English, which is weird. Um, and you say, what does he speak? No one really knows. Um, we, can't, we can't understand. And the best part is his church lets him sing in the choir. And I'm like, how is that going on? My wife is always just like, oh, I can't understand. I'm like, don't worry about it. No one knows what he's saying, right? If you've ever seen the water boy and you have the coach that's like, nah, 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 that's my grandfather. He just points and stuff like that, right? He doesn't have internet, so he can't listen to this. So there, there's a, there's a um, one thing about him, though, is he is the most consistent person that I know in everything. So when it comes to farming for him, he wakes up, he does what he needs to do, and he hopes for return. And the reason why he knows that he's going to reap things is because it's happened before. And so there's a consistency there. He, it may not come exactly the way that he wants it, but it'll come. It may not be as much sometimes as other years, but it comes. He prays for it. He trusts in God to do it because he trusts ultimately in just the law of farming, Right? Paul is saying it's the same way in the spirit. It's, it's not a one-time deal. It's not behaving. It's not just repenting, believing, and obeying once. It's a lifestyle of this. If you want to know how to sow in their spirit, it's a lifestyle of this. Repenting, believing, and obeying. And waking up the next day, repenting, believing, and obeying. Repenting, believing, and obeying. It's trusting what God says is true. It's walking in the spirit. And the way that you can strengthen yourself to be able to continue to sow seeds are the things that we talked about last week. It's being faithful to Bible study. It's being faithful to prayer. Those things help strengthen you to continue to believe, repent, and obey over and over again. And Paul says, when you do this, you will have eternal life. And when the Bible talks about eternal life throughout the scripture, it doesn't speak of eternal life so much as duration or time as it is of a quality of life. So eternal life is not just deferred joy when we get to heaven, though it is, but it's joy that you can have now in this life. It's a sense of having the spirit in your life permeate your life now. And the way that you grow in understanding of the spirit's work in your life is obedience. It's repentance and faith and obey. I mean, I keep saying those things over and over again because they say if you say three times, people will get it. Repentance, believing and obey. I didn't even get it, all right? So there's, there's, there, there's a sense where that, that's it. That's it. And, and Paul says, you will have a quality of life. Your life will be better. This sounds very, very prosperity. I get it. I'm, I'm getting close. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not saying that if you obey, somehow you're gonna get a bigger house. That, that may be the opposite. However, if you obey God, in response to Jesus' love, your life will go better. You will have an understanding of who you are in Christ. Circumstances around you may not change. Your, your marriage may still be very difficult. Your, your raising of your, parent, your kids may be very difficult. Um, your work experience may be very difficult. Maybe you're looking for a job because you don't have a job. still may be very difficult. However, your heart and your spirit in the midst of that is growing because you're being watered with the truth of a gospel. God blesses faithfulness, amen? I, I can't stress that enough. 
and, and some of you know exactly. On one side, you're sowing in the flesh, and you're miserable. On the other side, you're, showing in the, you're sowing in the spirit. Life's not that great, but there's a sense of joy. There's a sense of peace that God promises to those who follow him. Paul begins to wrap this up in verse 9, and he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So, so far, Paul has given us a ton of imperatives. Bear each other's burdens. Do not, do not think of ourselves as highly as we ought. Uh, share good things with those who teach us. So not into the spirit, but the flesh, but into the spirit. And, and now he comes to this and he says, a negative imperative, don't grow weary because you will reap. And if we were just honest and transparent to each other, we grow weary. I grow weary. Um, I, 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 I say yes to too many things. Um, I, say, I say no to things I probably should say yes with. Um, if you were speaking autobiographically, you can say, yeah, there's times in my marriage where I do want to, for a day, just tap out. There are times in, in, in my education that I do want to tap out. There's, there's time in work where I do, I just want to get out of here. There's a sense where but living as a Christian, though simple, is very, very hard. That's why I think Paul switches metaphors now to talking about a farmer. A farmer is one who's constantly working in the sun and sweating and praying and hoping and waiting, and there's patience. And so you, you, you get to a point where you just you, you want to tap out, and Paul says, don't grow, don't grow weary. And here, here's the danger of a text like this with so many imperatives, that we can listen to all these imperatives, that we can write notes down and say, if I just do these things, I won't grow weary. Let me just tell you, I promise you, if you do these things, there's a potential that you can grow weary. If you do all these things, there's a potential that you can grow weary and give up, the very thing that Paul says not to do. Here's why. If you only look at these verses um, alone and not in the context of this entire book and take the book of Galatians and the entire context of the entire Bible, it's easy to think that what God is calling you to do is do a few things and at the end of the day, he will accept you. But we've said week after week after week, the only way that you'll ever endure, the only things you'll ever be able to do these things and produce fruit is if you trust the foremost. It's not so much about you planting first, but realizing that God has planted his spirit in you. And that the gospel is not just something that forgives you of your sins, but the gospel is something that God, by his spirit, ignites you and endures you. And here's how we know. At the very heart of the gospel, we see Jesus Christ, God's son, coming and willingly, for our sin, being, metaphorically speaking, planted or sowed into the tomb. And yet God the Father, by the power of the Spirit, raises him from the dead. And so now we, in response to that, when we do what God has called us to do in obedience, we can trust that in our marriage, we can trust that in our family, in our relationships, in work, that we can expect ultimately the reaping. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that Paul says is in every single believer by faith in Christ Jesus. And so the way that we endure, again, is by walking in faith. The, raise, the way that we endure is, not, endure is not by doing these things, by trusting that Christ does these things in us and through us by the work of the Spirit. Amen? And the last thing Paul gives us when we'll close is this. So, verse 10, then, as we have every opportunity, and, and this is not when you make time, this is meaning you have the opportunity. Let us do good to everyone, especially those who are the household of faith. I love that. Paul says, I don't want to leave anybody out. The role of the Christian in response to Jesus is to look at Christ who laid down his life and now look at your family, look at the people who you love, and look at the people who you hate, the people who annoy you and the people who make you laugh. Lay your life down for them, those who love Jesus and those who don't love Jesus. And in essence, what he's saying is take the gospel and spread the gospel in word and deed. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, one thing I ask for us as a congregation today, Lord, that we would see the opportunity, the two opportunities that we have, to sow into the flesh or to sow into the spirit. And Father, by your grace, that you would allow us and give us the strength in the midst of our own um, thoughts, in the midst of our own weaknesses, to sow in your spirit and trust that a lifetime of sowing in the spirit, Father, that we would be able to have the quality of life in which you promised, and that is the quality of eternal life, a life that is spent with you, not just in heaven, but a life that is spent with you here. That, Father, we would desire to grow in our understanding of you, Lord, through your word, and grow in our understanding and trust of you through obedience, Father. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus that we see that you have given us, planted in us the Holy Spirit, and that's something that we'll, we'll reap. Father, I pray for those who are here who do not yet know you, that you would likewise, Lord, as you have done in many of our lives, Lord, water the Spirit in their lives, and that through the watering of the Spirit, that the truth of the gospel, Lord, which is preached every week here, Lord, would grow in them eternal life and a desire for eternal life. We pray that we as a church, Lord, would not just be a church for ourselves, but Lord, we would be a church that blesses this city and brings the gospel to bear um, in Tempe, And Father, we we thank you for the many students who were coming back from spring break, and we pray that continually that your gospel would come to bear at ASU, at our jobs, in our family, in our neighborhoods. In Christ's name we pray, amen.